0: So when I hear a parent say, as I very often do hear, you know, I, I just want my kids to be happy, uh, I think this is, this, you're doing your children a great disservice. My
1: name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning, and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I have found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Hugh Mackay AO has been tracking Australian attitudes for more than 60 years, since he began work in the mid 1950s at McNair Surveys, the predecessor to AC Nielsen. In 1971, he founded his own research company, the modestly named McKay Research, and for a quarter of a century produced a series of reports on everything from marriage to corporate ethics. This made him a regular commentator in the press and someone who was seen as in touch with the national mood, whatever that means. He's given over a dozen named lectures, been awarded four honorary doctorates, published books in the fields of communication, social psychology and social analysis. He's also the author of seven novels, the most recent being Selling the Dream*. In recent years, Hughes turned his attention towards The Good Life, with a trio of books on how to live a life of meaning and purpose. The Good Life in 2013, The Art of Belonging in 2014, and Beyond Belief, written in 2016, have generated a valuable conversation about what it it means to lead a good life. They're our topic for today, and it's a pleasure to welcome Hugh to the program.
0: Thank you very much, Andrew. I'm delighted to be here.
1: So what got you thinking about the good life?
0: I feel as though I've always been thinking about it. Um, uh, I think there were there were some formative influences that guaranteed I would be uh, very conscious of the ethical dimension of life, which is how I interpret the good life. I mean, the good life is often interpreted as having a whale of a time – uh, the high life, whereas I interpret it in in the kind of strict moral sense of good, that the good mm-hmm. life would be a life of goodness. So I, I had a fairly conventional Christian upbringing. I turned away from the conventionality of it in my 20s, but certainly that was very formative through childhood and adolescence into early adulthood. Uh, and I formally studied uh, philosophy as well as psychology did a master's degree in oh. moral philosophy. So I've always been thinking about uh, what's the right thing to do, what 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 would a good life be? I haven't always lived one by the way, but I have had it on my mind uh, more or less continuously. Um, and as a researcher, I mean one of the curious things about being a social researcher is that your own views and this this happened to me over several decades your own views you kind of move into the background and you become the blank slate on which people are writing their stories and that was that's what I did for all those years listening to people tell their stories trying to make sense of it trying to interpret it and in that time i think my own sense of what i really believed What I really thought, what I really wanted out of life, uh, kind of receded somewhat. I I can remember um, people asking me what I think about something, and my answer would always be what the community thinks. Oh, well, Mm. I'm very, yes, you know, I've heard people talk about this, and, uh, you know, people are generally pretty hostile to X, Y, or Z, whatever it is, as though I didn't have a view. And quite late in life, I came to the realisation that being a good listener, a good interpreter of data is terrific, and I made a a really, for me, fascinating, enjoyable and fulfilling career out of it. But the time had to come uh, when I would kind of re-inhabit my own head and not just be the listener, but return again to those roots and think again about what I really mean when I talk about living well, uh, doing the right thing, etc., which is why you very correctly identified those three most recent non-fiction books as a very significant departure from all of my previous writing, which was very much based on social analysis.
1: Have you found that this turn from positive work to normative work has brought you a greater sense of pleasure?
0: Yes, uh, uh, quite liberating uh, and deeply therapeutic Mm. (laughs) in the writing. Um, Writing out of research, and I'm actually working on a book at the moment, which is heavily research-based. But It's a funny blend. I mean, it's heavily research-based, but there's a lot of my own um, uh, thinking, my own aspirations in it as well. But that move from... Well, in the years when I was writing essentially research reports, really, Mm. expanded research reports about the state of the nation and what people are thinking about, all sorts of things, Um, you're a slave to the data when you're doing that. I mean, you have to be able to justify every sentence in terms of the available research uh, that, that justifies or underpins what you're saying. So the move to more reflective work is very liberating. I'm in a sense off the leash. Yes. Uh, I'm on another leash, of course. I have to be rigorous in thinking about ethical questions. Um, but at least I don't, uh, at least it's, it's, it's fairly obvious that I'm expressing my own view about all of this based on a combination of ancient wisdom and no doubt influenced by all those years of research. But I'm not just reporting data.
1: How interesting, yes. As somebody who seven years ago moved from... Being a professor into politics, I'm very much aware of that transition from a role in which your main job is to let the data speak to one in which uh, the the question is much more, what do you think about this? Uh, Before we move into what the good life is, just tell me a smidgen more about your your upbringing. Uh, Was it Protestant or uh, Catholic? Uh, How often did you go to church? That kind of thing.
0: Mm. Uh, From as... Young as I, well, it was Protestant. Um, mostly in Sydney, um, uh, three years of my childhood in Melbourne, um, but my entire childhood and through to my early adulthood, church going was an absolutely integral part of the week. In fact. Mm. Through my teen years, when I look back on it, I think Sunday was probably the busiest day of the week because it involved Sunday school and church twice uh, and, you know, perhaps some other church-related activities. I wouldn't say that mine was a particularly devout family. I, I, don't, I don't remember my parents ever having deep and meaningful conversations with me or my brother. I have one older brother. Uh, about spiritual, let alone religious, uh, questions, but because we were habitual churchgoers, the influence was very powerful.
1: And being a child of World War II, did that shape things?
0: Uh, no doubt. I mean, I'm too old to be a baby boomer. I was born just before uh, World War Two, um, so I, uh, yes, I grew up. When when I when I think back to childhood, I think of the sort of, that they would now look like deprivations uh, of a wartime and post-war society where right. rationing, I mean, I, I went shopping for my mother and took the coupons <laughs> to the butcher and, and so on because meat was rationed and lots of the tea was rationed. Lots of things were rationed. Um, uh, so what happened, I mean, I had some of the baby boomer experience of coming into the 50s and 60s and thinking, wow, uh, suddenly there's this explosion of prosperity and material comfort and what looked like the prospect of that being endless, uh, as though we were now on some kind of escalator to, uh, to prosperity. Though, again, a formative influence on me, though I was a bit older than the baby boom generation was the Cold War. Uh, so mm. so after World War Two, we moved more or less immediately into a period of global anxiety about nuclear weapons. Uh, would any of the, uh, would, would, would the Cold War turn hot? And if it mm. did, mm. W- well, we'd all be history. So I, I was really too old to be a child of that period. Um, but I can relate to that influence. I mean, I think the way to understand the baby boom generation is to acknowledge that they were uh, caught between those two completely incompatible propositions. One being, you have an endless future before you of prosperity, perhaps even wealth, but certainly material comfort. And you might be wiped out tomorrow. We we there could be a nuclear holocaust, and mm. there will be history. Mm. Uh, so that that became, that was a generation who I think even today we understand the baby boom generation best when we grasp that they as as very um, um, vulnerable uh, young people, even children, had those two propositions somehow buried in their psyche, which had to be reconciled and, and so mm. they became famous for instant gratification <laughs> uh, because that was the answer to the dilemma well we'd better make the most of it right now because we mightn't be here for a long time so you you talk
1: uh, beautifully in the good life about uh, gratification also about perfectionism uh, one of my favorite lines from the book is uh, fabulous has replaced good and great now means okay yes. uh But is perfectionism really such a problem if it means constantly striving to better yourself?
0: Hmm. Not at all. Um, I'm I'm something of a perfectionist myself in that sense. You know, I know that I could always be doing better. We could always be doing better. I think it's very appropriate for a society like Australia uh, not to just become smug and say, isn't this all lovely and we're all doing reasonably well. Yes, some people aren't, but broadly speaking, etc. cetera. Um, no, I think it's much better for us to say how much better could we be doing uh, while recognising that we won't... The utopia is beyond us. The hazard uh, in the utopian uh, way of thinking uh, is in child-rearing, I think. Andrew, I think that's the really big issue. If we are promising our children some kind of perfection in their own lives. Uh, the expectation that everything's going to be lovely, that they'll be constantly rewarded, uh, that, they'll, that, they're, that they're due praise for everything they do, uh, that kind of perversion, really, of, of the utopian uh, way of thinking that I think can be very damaging, uh, as though we are entitled to the best of everything. But I agree with you, absolutely. Um, it, on another level, it's very appropriate for us to be saying, well, we won't ever achieve utopia, but, boy, we could be doing a lot better than this.
1: But in the realm of parenting too, isn't it about thinking about how best to improve your children's engagement with the world and their, uh, their, their uh, approach to, to life's challenges? And while I think you're spot on in saying that we can overpraise our children... Uh, and much of what you're saying seems to follow in the lines of people like Angela Duckworth, who's written about the importance of, of talking about grit. I still worry that you, when you talk about good enough parenting, that that somehow says that it's, it's okay if you just turn on the TV and, uh, and go off and do your own thing.
0: <laughs> no, I'd, I'd, I'd be very disturbed if a reader of my work interpreted. Uh, what I'm saying about parenting as meaning that. Um, My main concern about parenting um, in the current um, period, contemporary Australia, contemporary Western society, uh, is that we are promising our children that life will be easier and more immediately rewarding than it actually will be. So good enough parenting, which is not my phrase, I've borrowed it, of course, um, uh, says to me, look, we we won't achieve perfect. We will will damage our kids uh, because our parents damaged us. That's all true. The Philip Larkin poem about this is absolutely true. (laughs) Uh, We don't do it deliberately, of course. And we should be doing the best we possibly can. But when I go into a bookshop and see an entire shelf of books about parenting, and recall that certainly two generations ago, the word parenting I think was not even in our vocabulary. Uh, I think we might have gone overboard with the idea that this is something you you have to get right. That that you know to 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 uh, upset your child uh, is to damage them for life. Now that that seems to me absurd, um, and I think. But part of part of what we're talking or part of what I'm thinking when we're talking about this is the overemphasis among contemporary parents on the happiness of children. So when I hear a parent say, as I very often do here, you know, I, I, I just want my kids to be happy, uh, I think this is this – you're doing your children a great disservice – if you are think depending what you what you mean by happiness of course but if you're thinking that you want your children to be in a positive emotional state all the time then what you're setting them up for is terrible disappointment when they discover some of the nuances of real life and when they discover that disappointment is built in and that sadness is an absolutely authentic uh, and and very educational uh, emotion for us to experience. Um, but in the current, um, in the current climate, uh, a parent seeing a child crying is rather than putting an arm around the shoulder and saying, let's talk about this. I wonder what's upset you. We all cry sometimes and feeling blue is fine. There doesn't even have to be a reason. Uh, no, what's much more likely to happen is, come on, give us a smile as though we're only interested in smiles. Tears have no place. Well, tears have a place, and the the legitimacy of tears is precisely equal to the legitimacy of smiles.
1: Mm. There's an awful lot to unpack in that. I was thinking I just returned from the United States uh, seeing my American in-laws, and uh, we went for a canoe trip down the Brandywine River in, uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, and to me, the best thing about the canoe trip was the moment when one of the canoes uh, overbalanced in the river, and uh, and one of my youngest child uh, fell in the water for, uh, for for about ten seconds before we fished him out. Uh, mm because the notion that the canoe can tip over and you can get very wet and uh, and, and you, can, you can be fine, I think, is a, is a good child, uh, child-rearing experience. And indeed, I'm always struggling as to that, how to build resilience in, in kids. But I do think that, that that struggle and that hard work on how to build resilience is, is probably much of the work of modern parenting. And when I look in the cross-section at outcomes for kids according to how much engagement their parents have and the extracurricular activities and so on, it seems to me, at least in the cross-section, a fairly strong pattern between parental parenting times and children's outcomes. So I wonder whether we maybe shouldn't worry about the number of books on parenting, but but about the quality of them.
0: Hmm. Well, absolutely. I think there is a shift. Uh, your, your canoeing story Uh, I'm imagining that quite vividly. Uh, (laughs) It was very vivid. (laughs) and, and, And it's a wonderful example of this. I think there is actually a shift taking place now. I think we've been through a period of obsessive, narrow focus on the idea of happiness Interpreted for kids, interpreted in a rather superficial way of we want them all to be smiling and laughing and skipping and singing and uh, you know, full of the joy of life, etc. And of course, who doesn't want their children to be in that state? Um, but a completely unrealistic expectation that they should be happy. I think we are moving, I think resilience is a crucial word to introduce into the conversation. I think we are moving. Uh, culturally, slowly, away from the obsession with happiness towards a much more nuanced idea of what a fulfilling life would be about, recognising that it's lovely to be happy sometimes, it's a fleeting emotion, Um, you don't strive for it or you'll never get there. But resilience is a far more important focus in the raising of children um, because it's about how are we going to deal with what actually happens because what happens is the canoe will tip over at some point uh, the, the girlfriend will ditch you. Um, you know you, you you may be retrenched. Uh, your parents will die. You know, all, all of these things um, are built in and we need to be uh, equipped for it. Um, and, and that leads I think to a larger, question also um, when about the good life when we talk about the good life it's so tempting to think that it's all about um, the, the, the sort of fulfilment we hope for is all about euphoria mm. fulfilment meaning now I'm rich, now I'm happy now I'm comfortable, now my kids are in a good school or something whereas everything we know from, not, not just from the ancient philosophers but even from the most contemporary um, um, positive psychologists, a movement I have some scepticism about, but still they've done some extremely useful research on this point, uh, which is that our deepest fulfilment comes from the sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. And most of the things that give us a deep sense of meaning and purpose, such as parenting uh, or our work, uh, being a parliamentarian or a social researcher or whatever we might be, those things don't don't necessarily bring us happiness and certainly not all the time. Sometimes being a parent can make you deeply miserable for long periods of time because of your concern about the well-being of a child or have I made the right decision about this child's education or whatever it might be. Um, so the idea that... Fulfillment equals happiness or even contentment, I think, is very misleading. I think fulfillment does come from the sense that what I'm doing has meaning Mm. and that I'm fulfilling a worthy purpose in the way I live. Now we can explore what the worthy purpose might be.
1: So to to go back to your sort of philosophical training, I feel like if there's a spectrum between Stoics and Epicureans, between those who believe that meaning is derived through striving for hard things versus those who believe in the hedonistic pleasures of great food and great company, you're much more on the Stoic end than the Epicurean end. Would that be fair?
0: It would be fair. Even though I love good food and good friends, I mean, (laughs) I don't decline invitations to convivial occasions (laughs) on the grounds that this would offend my stoicism at all. Uh, But I am towards that end of the spectrum. And it's for this reason, Andrew, that when I I think of the good life in the sense that I mentioned fleetingly at the beginning of the conversation, that is a life characterized by goodness— that means I'm thinking about a, moral, a morally praiseworthy life, the kind of life that I would like to live, you obviously would like to live. I think most people would rather have other people's judgment of them be that they're good people rather than that they're bad people or just self-indulgent, uh, reckless hedonists. Um, so what is goodness in this sense? What, you know, what is morality all about? It is a social construct morality is only ever about how we uh, relate to other people and goodness in my mind very clearly is only about how we respond to the needs of other people so the good life for me is a life lived for others mm. uh, that, that that i'm I'm prepared to say my the, the meaning of my life, the purpose of my the thing that will give me the deepest sense of meaning will be that I've responded to the needs of this society or my next-door neighbour or whatever it might be as well as I can. Um, now, that doesn't mean I won't please myself as well. It it doesn't mean, uh, for example, that I discount the importance of solitude. I'm, I'm a bit of a hermit by nature. Uh, I love nothing more than curling up with a book Uh, on a wet Saturday afternoon. I mean, you could say that was very self-indulgent, but we need that, you know, we've got, but why do we need it? Um, I think when we do things that uh, are designed to build up our own personal, emotional, spiritual resources, the purpose of that in in the bigger sense of purpose is to equip us to be more effective citizens, parents, neighbors, Employees, uh, whatever we are. Why is
1: it that we forget the golden rule, the the principle that we should do unto others as we would have them do to us?
0: Hmm. I I think, of course, not everyone does forget it, and there are many people who, if you if you really ask them to focus on what is their primary moral position that is what they'll say that mm. that I, I I know I should be treating other people the way I would like to be treated or people often get it more get the concept more easily when it's expressed negatively I shouldn't treat someone in a way that mm. I would not like to be treated I think it was that was the Confucian version I think uh, of the golden rule um, I think we lose sight of it for for uh, well, this is a very big question you've asked me. I think we lose sight of it because in the contemporary Western society, Australia being a shining example, uh, we've seen the rise of individualism and materialism. And that's a lethal combination for the moral health of a society. Because materialism, fueled by the consumerist sort of mass marketing industry, really, um, which is, I, I accept, the handmaiden of capitalism and that's the kind of society we live in. doesn't mean we have to say it's all wonderful. And in many respects, it's not wonderful because one of the things that's not wonderful about it is the, the materialist ethic, the consumerist ethic, is all about me. it It feeds the idea that I'm entitled to all of this comfort all of these brands, all of this food. But it's not about how can we make the world a more harmonious place? How can we make Australia uh, a more unified society? It's, it's all about me. And, of course, so that feeds into the, the ethic of individualism, which is a very modernist uh, kind of view. We, we, we've become uh, imbued with this idea that it's all about the individual, that an appropriate quest for my life is the quest to discover who am I. Mm. Now, all of that emphasis on the individual, and again, I emphasize I understand that we are individuals. We're all unique. All of that is true. But a deeper truth, and I think a far sweeter truth about humans is that we are social beings that we absolutely need each other, that, uh, that, that it's communities that nurture us and uh, sustain us and protect us and define us. Um, my, my favorite psychologist, Carl Rogers, the American psychotherapist, um, towards the end of his life wrote that when any of his clients... Came to a full understanding of who they are, it was always to realise that they belong somewhere, that they're part of a network of a family, a workplace, a neighbourhood, a gang, whatever it might be, that that's who I am. And and I think we've, the reason why the Golden Rule has dropped off the radar uh, to too great, I think, to too great an extent. Uh, is that we have lost sight of the essentially communitarian nature of the human species. In this respect, by the way, this is nothing to brag about. In this respect, we're like most species on the planet. Uh, Most species like us form communities and sustain those communities by engaging with them and being part of them. And part of belonging to a community... Uh, uh, well, let me just wind back. There's a symmetrical um, point in all this that we can't survive without community. I mean, hu- humans are hopeless in isolation. Uh, your canoe trip, uh, if it had been a solo canoe trip mm. and the canoe had capsized, you could have been in all kinds of trouble. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, but but when when you were doing what we normally do, which is hunt in packs, uh, move together, uh, we've got each other to rely on, and that's true whether it's a canoe trip or whether it's in in my street, uh, someone in a bit of trouble that I need to be aware of and able to respond to. Um, so, so we need we need communities to survive physically and emotionally, but communities need us, and that's the bit uh, of the symmetry that I think is is not getting as much attention as I would like to see it receive, um, because it means that a community won't be a healthy community unless I'm engaging with it and contributing to it. Uh, so yes, I'm, I'm an individual as well. When I go home and close the front door, uh, I can have solitude or just be with my own spouse, partner, family, whatever it might be, um, that's fine. But when I go out the door, I'm actually a member of this community with responsibilities to this community. Now, what that means is altruism comes naturally to us. And when you see people behaving selfishly, ignoring the needs of a person in distress or a neighbour who's unwell and needs you to do their shopping for them or something, that's weird. That's not natural normal human behavior, natural, normal human behavior is to feel that we are, because we are part of this community, we absolutely have a responsibility to help to nurture and sustain the community. And that's a case by case concept. You can't engage with the community in some Mm. conceptual Mm. way. It means actually relating to people, smiling at people, making yourself available to people who need you.
1: And you talk in The Art of Belonging about uh, this fictional community of Southwood and and how some of those ideas play out in in this this imaginary uh, community. In practical terms, what can we do to to better engage with our own local communities?
0: There's a fairly long list, um, and it starts with very simple things. I mentioned smiling. Um, Canberra, I've recently moved to Canberra. Wise choice. From, yes, I know that. Uh, this is the r- wrong time to ask me because I'm still in love with the place, so I think everything is just <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> but one of the things I love about it is the friendliness. Mm. Now, I was warned that I would find the opposite. Oh, Canberra's a very unfriendly place. Now, I walk down the street, and with very few exceptions, people don't just smile, but they say good morning or... What a fabulous day, or anything. Um, And that, of course, that simple thing of eye contact, smiling, greeting, total strangers when you pass them in the common space that you share, uh, that says two things, really. It says we are both members of this community, uh, uh, so we're we're part of the place, uh, so why would we ignore each other? And the other thing it does is it relates to what I think of as one of the deepest and most, um, I suppose, most ubiquitous of all the desires that drive human beings, which is the desire to be taken seriously, to be acknowledged. Mm. If you pass someone who says hello to you and you don't respond, uh, it's like... um, a husband who ignores his wife when she asks him to do something, at one level, that's trivial. At a deeper level, it's really serious because it's saying, I'm sorry, I don't take you seriously enough Mm. to smile. I don't take you seriously enough to acknowledge what you've said. So just that very simple thing of acknowledging each other is the beginning. Uh, The second thing I think, I'm a great... This sounds really old fashioned, Andrew, I mean I do understand about the world of the internet and I'm fully plugged into it, but I'm a great believer in the significance of the local neighbourhood. And I think we are in danger of thinking that online communities can replace the neighbourhood. Now, what's wonderful about the neighbourhood is that generally speaking, we didn't choose our neighbours. And one of the great moral formations for human beings is learning how to get along with people who are not necessarily like us, not family, not friends, not even work colleagues who are probably like-minded. Mm. But in the street, most people just buy a house or an apartment or rent without interviewing all the neighbours to say, gee, I wonder if I could live happily in a place like this. You, you, you move in and then you start that wonderful human process of getting to know the neighbors and figuring out how you can fit into this little little community i think i think when, when people say and this is this is almost a cliche of urban life in our major metropolitan centers when people say i don't know my neighbors i think that's a tragedy uh, and of course so do they when when people no one ever says i don't know my neighbors in a spirit of achievement or pride. They don't say, at last, you know, I've achieved this wonderful situation where I don't know my neighbours anymore. Mm. They say it wistfully, knowing that it's pretty weird to live next door to someone and not even know their name, you know, perhaps never do anything more than smile or, or if you're going to and fro by car, maybe not even that. Um, so I think getting to know your immediate neighbours is a crucial part of engaging with the community, because one of the things we know, um, you know it as a member of parliament, uh, I know it as a social researcher, but I think we all know it, is that everyone has got trouble. Everyone's story has got shadows in it. Everyone carries some kind of tragedy personally or in the family Mm, or mm. um, uh, everyone's in need. Uh, And the more we get to know people, the more we'll be able to identify what those needs are and be responsive to them. So so superficially, smiling, saying good day, etc., getting to know the neighbours. But then I think a third way of engaging with the community is to actually participate more formally in things, to join, to, to be a person who does go to local community meetings or joins a community choir or goes to... Um, Parent-teacher nights at the school, or you know, it, it gets into it mm. in some way. Joins book clubs, goes to church if if, if church is your thing. Being being part of the organisations which are themselves um, um, serving the local community. Now, I'm I'm also totally in favour of b- being engaged with global issues. And uh, national issues, all of that, but I think we're 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 letting the side down. we're not being true to our nature as social beings if we're not engaged with the local community.
1: One of the strikingly simple things that my wife and I have done for uh, the last ten years is just to host uh, drinks for our local streets uh, in the middle of December it takes about two hours out of our Saturday to actually do uh, it takes about 20 minutes to organize and means that for the rest of the year we're on first name terms with people up and down our street yes. uh, and it's um It's just surprisingly simple to do, Uh, but when I describe it to other people, I can see them immediately say, oh, this must be very complicated. You must need a permit to close down the street. (laughs) No, 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 we don't close down the street. We just invite the neighbours over. (laughs) We take last year's invitation, we change the date, we put it in their letterboxes and and they come over and we have a good time. Um, But yes, those those barriers we put up to getting to know the neighbours are uh, to me a real concern.
0: Yes, I agree. And, and that, that's a lovely example of. So, and of course, many thousands of Australians do that. In the, in the apartment mm. block where I've moved in, I became conscious of the fact that people didn't all know each other. And we did what you've done invited Wonderful. people in yes. for a drink. Uh, so now we all know who we are. And we can not just say good day, but we can say good day, Jack, uh, or whoever it is.
1: And Andrew Heslop's Neighbour Day is, uh, has yes. popularised this as well. Yes. Um, but one of the other forms of civic engagement that you talk about us having lost is, uh, is organised religion and uh, Beyond Belief is, is devoted to that discussion of what, uh, what religion gave us. Um, why, why do we need religion in Australia? Uh, the latest census again shows that uh, fewer of us believe in a higher power uh, isn't that the ultimate matter of uh, of individual choice where we should say it's up to people to decide what uh, what deity they believe in or, or not?
0: Yes. Oh, and I absolutely agree with that. I think uh, the, the subtitle of that book, which we call Beyond Belief, the subtitle was uh, How We Find Meaning With or Without Religion. So it wasn't a book urging religion on us, but it was a book urging faith on us um, because one of the things that I think... Uh, uh, is now incontrovertibly true and uh, and understood about humans is that we are at our best when we have faith in something greater than ourselves. Now, that doesn't have to be a deity. Uh, It might be faith in uh, a democracy or it might be faith in the community or faith in the goodness of the essential goodness of humanity or... Some people have faith in the stock market, or I don't know. Um, but for many people, tr- traditionally through history, that's been faith in God, but in God interpreted in constantly changing ways. Now, the contemporary Australian situation, particularly arising from the latest census, is, I think, being widely misinterpreted. Um, the number of people saying no religion has certainly gone up and, I think, reached 39% in the current... Uh, I think about a third uh, is...
1: is uh, sorry,
0: uh, yes, th- Yes. Uh, around about 39%, I think, roughly, or 38%, 39% saying no religion. Now, that figure cannot possibly be interpreted for at least another four years because it arose from a change in the structure of the census form. So whereas no religion used to be at the bottom of the list of religious options, uh, after a lot of lobbying, uh, it was put to the top of the list. So now we don't know whether the increase is due to the so-called donkey vote, whether, whether it's because now it's the top of the list or whether there really has been an increase. We won't know until, ideally, the next census should put it back on the bottom, and the one after should put it back on the top. and by then we'd begin to see to what extent that that figure is affected by the, I mean the argument that that it was it was a distorted figure because it was the, at the bottom means that if you put it at the top, mm. whatever, whatever's now at the bottom will be a distorted figure. <laughs> so there was, a, there was an inherent uh, lack of logic in that. Um, but also, of course, the uh, first time, I think, in our history, when there was actually propaganda, actually attempts at advocacy, persuading people to tick the no religion box in the census. So it was an odd thing. Nevertheless, if we accept that it's absolutely true, people are now saying, so that's the largest group um, in terms of religious observance in Australia. No religion, out polls, Catholics, Anglicans, etc. Well... That's true. But if you put all the Christian denominations together, as we do for Muslims or Buddhists or any of the other religious groups that have lots of subgroups, put them all together. um, And it's around about 51 or 52% of Australians who are still identifying as Christian. And those saying no religion is significantly smaller than that group. So we are still living in a society in which you can say just a bare majority, but a majority of Australians identify as Christian. And in polling, not the census, but in polling by ANU and um, I think Nielsen, uh, a couple of major polling um, activities over the last few years have shown that about two thirds of Australians say they believe in some higher power. Um, god or some higher power and of course the 37 or 38 percent who are saying no religion that's not atheists that's people who don't have any religious practice but they may well have some kind of I mean there's a there's a category which I discovered when I was researching that book uh, called SBNR which stands for spiritual but not religious mm. and that's mm. a growing group particularly among young people but some older people as well who want to say uh, look i'm i'm interested in the spiritual dimension of life i'm interested in what i could put my faith in but i'm not remotely interested in internet in uh, institutional religion
1: and i know you've uh, i think like me spoken at uh, various of these sunday assembly kind of kinds of movements um and i I loved the uh, the style and way, the way in which they operated, but I am also struck by the fact that uh, people don't tend to use the Sunday assembly for big events such as weddings or for funerals. Why is it that we turn back to the church at those life-changing moments?
0: I think buried deep in our culture is the idea that the biggest metaphysical questions, uh, when when our backs are to the wall, um, the biggest metaphysical metaphys- questions may draw on. Uh, depends how you express it, the, the language of religion, the, the consolations of religion. Although you mentioned weddings, it's now the case that the big majority of Australian weddings don't happen in a church. Sure. Majority of funerals still do, but it's sh- it's shrinking. Um, but I think, yes, at moments of crisis, I, I, I heard a Salvation Army officer whose job is to attend um, accidents and you know, calamities of various kinds. Um, and I heard him being interviewed about this and he said, I always offer to pray with a person who's been affected by this and I've never been knocked back. Uh, and I suppose if someone says, you know, can I can I pray for you or can I pray with you? Mm. It would be pretty churlish to say no you know i don't I don't believe in any of that stuff. There's some aspect of us, I think some some part of us that acknowledges there are many things we don't understand that there is spiritual is a is a currently fashionable word for it that there's a spiritual dimension of life that is beyond our rational. Understanding that there are questions—the biggest questions we would like answers to—have no answers. I mean, why are we here? There, we can we can figure out roughly how we got here, but that of course doesn't begin to address the question of why we're here. Mm. What will happen to us when we die? Uh, the, these sort of questions. What it, what, it, what does it all mean? Uh, you know, is there a meaning, capital M, of life, capital L? Who knows? So if if you're if those questions are worrying you, you're very likely to go to ancient sources, whether religious or philosophical, mm. uh, to to try and get an answer that will satisfy you. The alternative is just shelve the question.
1: Yes. It's interesting, before when you were mentioning the Salvation Army worker, I couldn't help thinking of... Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who responded on his deathbed to an offer for uh, uh, prayer to be invoked on his behalf uh, with the words, do not trouble deaf heaven with your bootless cries. Uh, (laughs) But Hitchens in that, as in many things, was the exception and not the rule. Um, Before we wrap up, I'm just curious, you're such a prolific writer Tell me a little bit about your process of writing, Hugh. Uh, do you have? Uh, uh, do you do it in the morning, in the evening? Do you have a special spot in which you work? Do you do, do you write to music? Uh, how do you manage to produce so 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 much of high quality? Uh, what, what's what's your secret for other writers?
0: Well, first of all, thank you for that compliment. That's a very kind thing to say about it. Um, I'm since I. Retired from hands-on research. When I was writing and running a research business as well, it was very difficult. I was writing sporadically, evenings, weekends. Sometimes I'd just take a week away and go to the mountains and and write. Uh, since I've no longer, I'm no longer running a research business, um, it's much easier, and it's quite boring. I tend to work. Roughly office hours, I, I, I work in my study at home, definitely not with music playing. I mean, I'm an absolute music lover. I sing in a choir. That's, that's another wonderful way of jo- joining a community. Um, um, but I don't like music just as background uh, because I want to listen to it. So that distracts me the same as if I was at the radio with people talking, it would distract me. Uh, so I like to work in silence. Um, and I do work... Um I'm, I'm very disciplined about it. I, I, and I think there are, there are two reasons for that. One is because I ran a research business for most of my working life, I was constantly writing research reports to very tight deadlines. You know, a project might take four or five weeks. A client is waiting for the results. You can't say, oh, I've got writer's block. <laughs> You've got to write the stuff mm. uh, and produce it and present it on the deadline so I, my, my whole working life was deadline driven and then when I for about 25 years I wrote a weekly newspaper column in uh, various publications most recently Fairfax um, and there again you can't say when the deadline rolls around lunchtime on Thursday or I'm not in the mood or I'm, I haven't got anything ask someone else I mean you, you produce it so yes. so when, when I've got a and I write I have contracts for books, so I, there's a deadline for the manuscript, uh, and I take that very seriously. So when I know that I've got a writing project on, that's that's what I do. That's my work. Mm. Uh, I'm easing back a bit. I mean, I'm not. I'm, that sounds a bit relentless. I'm still capable of taking a week off in the middle of writing a book, but but in a writing week, um, I'm, after this interview, I will go back to work and press on with the new book.
1: Aiming towards a word target for the day or just a number of hours in front of the screen?
0: Yes, it's it's more the hours um, because some days, uh, you know, just flows uh, mm. and I might produce 5,000 words in a day but other times it might take me a week to produce 5,000 words. Um, I'd, I'd think that it was a pretty poor day's work if it was fewer than 1,000.
1: Yeah. So let me... Finally, uh, wrap up by asking you a series of questions I ask all of my interviewees. So what advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: Uh, first of all, I'd, I would say before I gave the advice, I would remember that teenagers are very unformed creatures and we need to be quite tolerant of them. <laughs> Their frontal lobes are not fully formed, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a classic example of that. But I think I would say to my teenage self, don't be so dogmatic. Uh, don't, don't be so judgmental. And that came out of the, the Protestant religious upbringing. It was too black and white. And I would like to say to the younger Hugh, I mean, it, it, it eventually came to Hugh later, but I would like to, like to say to the younger Hugh, just be a little more tolerant, a little more understanding, a little more flexible, There's a lot of grey out there and don't pretend it's black or white.
1: What's something you used to believe but no longer do?
0: I used to believe in an external God being. Uh, I no longer do. I think I would describe myself now, I suppose, as a Christian agnostic. Um, And some some of my... Friends from the past who are still friends but who who still have the same belief in an external divinity think that I'm an atheist because my concept of God is of a spirit, a a loving spirit within Mm. us and among us. It comes from us rather than to us and it's among us and I think of that as the divine aspect of humanity. But I don't think that divine aspect of humanity comes from a divinity so that's changed.
1: You said before that you were uh, sceptical of the, uh, the the striving for happiness, but uh, nonetheless, I should ask you: When are you most happy? <laughs>
0: uh, it, it's tempting to say when I'm writing. I think I'm most fulfilled when I'm writing, but I think just in a in a self-indulgent way of thinking of you know when 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 is it just sheer pleasure that's reading? When I'm when I'm uh, immersed, particularly in a novel. Uh, um, and that's that's an echo of childhood. I mean, I, when I think of my childhood, I think of the the, the great, the most intense pleasure I had was reading, mm. uh, and I think that's still true.
1: What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh,
0: the most important thing I do, I think, is singing in a choir, uh, choral singing. Uh, I, I don't know if you do it. Um,
1: I used to do a little singing but not any longer
0: Yeah well let me urge you to get back into it Andrew I mean the the experience of any kind of communal corporate music making is wonderful but when it's just the voice it's especially wonderful that experience of being in a group of 20 or 30 people making a beautiful sound, a far more beautiful sound Mm. than I I haven't got a particularly good voice Uh, I can't make a beautiful sound if I were to sing a solo it would be embarrassing But being part of a choir, contributing to a beautiful sound, is a very um, therapeutic, uplifting experience. But, of course, it's also, you you mentioned, uh, physically healthy. It's extremely good for breathing, for posture. Uh, I always come out of a rehearsal feeling uplifted by the experience. Uh, And that is both mental and, and it's, of course... Um, cognitively very good for us having to Mm. sight read music or even just read music that we partly know is very good for the uh, cognition Um, apart from that walking is my main physical Mm. activity and of course canberra is it's like walking in heaven in canberra
1: (laughs) i was thinking yesterday i'd um went for my first bush run since being back in the country and was out for an hour said good day to probably a dozen people along the track and had a lovely conversation with a friend who was running in the same, same direction so the ability to do your socializing and your exercising at the same time in this city is just uh, unparalleled. Mm-hmm. Do you have any guilty pleasures?
0: I've heard you ask other people this and I knew you would ask me this uh, um this sounds really pathetic, but I think the answer is ice cream. Because hmm. I know it's not very good for me, but I love it. <laughs> Which flavour? Uh, boysenberry, as a matter of fact. Hmm. Yes.
1: Is that a childhood thing? I it's, it's quite an unusual flavour. Yes, no,
0: it's a, and it's not easy to get. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I haven't found a Keeps good... Keeps the
1: guilt down, I suppose. <laughs> That's
0: right. So I settled for vanilla. <laughs>
1: Um, and finally, Hugh, which um, person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: Uh, it's a blend, Andrew. I think it's the it's the I- experientially it's the combination of uh, being brought up in a in a very explicit Christian tradition, and the extended formal study of moral philosophy. I think that 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 blends. So, so to identify, I mean. It, Plato, uh, Hume, Kant, Bertrand Russell, Iris Murdoch. You know, a lot of these um, ancient and modern philosophers in the area of moral philosophy have been very influential. Uh, but I'd have to say, for the author of the Christian tradition, Jesus Christ, uh, if I were a Buddhist, I'm sure I'd say Buddha, and, and similarly for uh, for other religions. But the But the absolute essence of the teachings of Jesus, as expressed in the parables and the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Whether he actually said any of that is another question entirely, but does in terms of the tradition, um, that seems to me to be a really beautiful distillation of what the good life means because it's all about responding to the needs of other people.
1: Well, Hugh Mackay, uh, author of The Good Life, thank you for uh, taking the time today to speak with us on The Good Life podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Andrew.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please let your friends know on your favourite social media app. And if you are interested in politics or policy, you might want to check out my Andrew Lee Speeches and Conversations podcast, including a recent speech on reducing inequality. Next week, I'll be back with a new guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.